3. Just about this time the Portuguese fitted out the most imposing fleet which had ever left their shores. It was commanded by one of the greatest of Portuguese explorers, Vasco de Agama, and was destined to sail round the Cape of Good Hope to the Indies the new and marvelous land of spices. The fleet was worthy of its commander, it was made up of no fewer than 13 vessels, and was manned by some 1.200 men. With pomp and ceremony this imposing armada sailed away from the blue waters of the Tagus, and, rounding the sunlit bluff, stood away to the south. It made the Canaries in the usual way, passade the Cape Verde Islands, and struck out to the west, lighting on the Brazilian coast in latitude 17 degrees south that is to say, not far from the spot where stands the present town of Bahia. From this point Vasco Diego sailed southward, keeping touch with the coast. He eventually established communication with the Indians, who were, as was usual in these latitudes, quite naked, their bodies being painted, and who wore great bones in their ears and in their slit lips and noses, a criminal, one of the type which seems to have been brought out for purposes such as this, was landed in order to dwell among the natives, to test their temper and habits and somewhat precarious professionists, after a while the fleet sailed from the place they named Port Seguro leaving two of these criminals or degradados professional pioneers behind. These were seen lamenting and crying upon the beach, and the men of the country comforting them, demonstrating that they were not a people devoid of pity. This was the scene which presented itself to the eyes of the more fortunate mariners as they sailed away. Nevertheless, the criminals seemed to have survived. No small advertisement, this, of the courtesy of the Indian tribe for the people composing it must have belonged to one of the coastal races who afterwards were grimly famed for their ferocity. As a matter of fact, human instruments of the kind, which, it must be admitted, were of small merit, played no small part in the colonization of Brazil. In some respects these unfortunate folk were undoubtedly full. They resembled the candles carried by underground miners. If the candle continued to burn, all was well, but if the candle went out, there was obviously danger in the air. Quite a number of these human candles went out in the course of the early Iberian explorations. In a sense there was sufficient justice in this, since they were criminals whose offenses had been usually those of murder and violence. If, therefore, they escaped in the first instance with their lives, their penitence had been consummated, and they were free to take advantage of the land. People of this kind had been set ashore to pave the way for their betters in Africa and in India, and the system was now extended to Brazil. When friendly relations were once established, it may be imagined that the influence of these criminals upon the savages was not of the best. According to Southey, the Europeans were weaned from that human horror at the blood feasts of the savages, which, ruffians as they were, they had at first felt, and the natives lost that awe and veneration for the superior races, which might have proved so greatly to their advantage. In 1503 the Portuguese sent out an important expedition under Duarte Coelho. This leader explored the country in the neighborhood of the Bay of Bahia. After this he proceeded southwards, and landed men in order to establish a small colony. The first really important attempt at colonizing the country was undertaken by Martin Afonso de Souza. This navigator set out from Portugal in command of many ships and men. Like Coelho, he struck the Brazilian coast at Bahia, but, instead of proceeding to the south, as his predecessor had done, he remained for some while at the spot. It is said that when de Souza landed he fell in with a Portuguese of the name of Correa. This worthy is supposed to have formed one of Cabril's expedition. For some reason or other he was marooned at that place. The Indians, instead of slaying him, 
had conceived a great veneration for this white man, who had, as it were, dropped from the clouds into their midst. The maroon sailor had become a kind of professional advisor, whose counsel was sought by the natives on every important occasion. Many of the early navigators maintain that the comparatively easy colonization of this portion of the Brazilian coast was due to the presence of the much-esteemed Korea. The here rapidly became the most important of these early Portuguese settlements. In the first instance it was, of course, extremely difficult for the few bands of daring Portuguese to make any practical impression on the huge slice of coast which had fallen to their share. The experiences of the first colonists, moreover, were destined to differ considerably from those of the pioneer Spaniards. The latter had their field of exploration practically to themselves. The Portuguese, on the other hand, found rivals in the South Seas almost as soon as the prows of their ships had pierced the waters. The Dutch eventually were destined to become by far the most formidable of these, but in the first instance the chief friction occurred with the French. Just at this period the Gallic sailors awoke to a strong interest in Brazil, and the French vessels carried numbers of warlike and industrial adventurers to the tropical shores. Even before 1530 a French factory had been established at Pernambuco but a circumstance of far greater importance was that these French rovers discovered the magnificent harbor of Rio de Janeiro, sailed into the narrow entrance between the lofty peaks, and founded a colony there before the Portuguese had obtained the opportunity of a permanent footing in that place. The leader of these troops was Nicolas Durant de Villagagnon, and his men comprised a number of Huguenots who were abandoning France. Villagagnon's own character appears to have been complex and curious in the extreme. He was apparently a true blade of the old swashbuckling type, he employed religion for such ends as he might have in view at the moment, regarding its tenets cynically, tongue-in-cheek, thus he came out in command of the Huguenots, ostensibly himself a Huguenot, but his convictions appear to have changed on various occasions, and he is seen now as their abettor, now as their oppressor, in the end he clearly showed himself antagonistic to the convictions of his followers, and took to denouncing them as heretics. With the exception of this leader, the circumstances and motives of the expedition were somewhat similar to those which caused the first emigration of the English Puritans to North America. Once established in Rio de Janeiro, the Huguenots succeeded in making friends with the Indians of the neighborhood, who became their firm allies and proved of great assistance to the French in their struggles against the Portuguese, who came down in force to evict the intruders. The Huguenots were defeated in 1560 by Mendoza, the third governor of Brazil. But, although dispersed for a while, the power of the invaders was by no means broken. Shortly afterwards they came together again, and succeeded in establishing themselves more firmly than before in the place. They were again fiercely attacked by the Portuguese, but the number of islands in the bay afforded excellent points of defense, and it was not until 1567 that the Portuguese sea and land forces combined were able to expel the last Frenchmen from the mountains which lay about the harbor of Rio de Janeiro. This, as a matter of fact, was merely a foretaste of much of the active and aggressive competition in matters of colonization from which the Portuguese were destined to suffer. Before arriving at the subject of the predatory expeditions of the various nations in South America, it would be as well to consider the initial methods taken by the early Portuguese settlers. In the first instance the partition of so vast an extent of territory among so small a number of colonists was necessarily effected in a crude and tentative fashion. The great colony was divided into capitanias, or counties, each of which possessed a coastline of 150 miles. A governor was appointed to each capitania, as was perhaps natural. The powers of each of these officials, 
more or less isolated as each was, grew rapidly to such an extent, indeed, that the home authorities in Portugal became anxious to curb the occasional eccentricities of some of the more despotic of these, in order to effect this. Tom de Souza was made Captain General of Brazil, and was sent out to that country provided with numerous officials and troops. He established his headquarters at Bahia, and the size of the town increased in consequence. In 1572 Brazil was divided into two governmental areas, Bahia being recognized as the capital of the north, and Rio de Janeiro as the capital of the southern portion. This division, however, only lasted for five years. Brazil in the meanwhile was becoming populous and had taken its place as the largest among the regular Portuguese colonies throughout the world. It was not long before the jealousies between the Spanish and Portuguese led to various outbreaks and to troubles on the frontiers. From a purely practical point of view, there is no doubt whatever that such bickerings were a sheer absurdity, since the territories at the disposal of both nations were far too great to be effectively dealt with by any forces which either the Spanish or Portuguese could introduce into the continent, as it was. The era was one of molding and experiments. Even at the present day it would seem difficult to decide whether many of these latter have proved themselves definite successes or undoubted failures. The general conditions of the New World at this period are well worthy of note. No doubt South America has been more widely experimented upon in the colonizing sense than any other continent. The methods of the Spaniards and Portuguese were by no means similar throughout. Indeed. The principles adopted by the four greatest colonizing nations of the age the Spanish, the Portuguese, the English, and the Dutch were all distinguished from each other by various important features. The British, where they came into contact with dark-skinned races of inferior vigor and individual power, made a point of holding aloof, so far as the more important social points were concerned. Thus in India and in Africa the gulf between the white and the black has continued in bridged. The representatives of the British have remained as a governing race, relying upon the strict justice of their rule for its preservation. They have refrained from interference in the thousand jealousies and caste regulations with which the East Indies were, and are, honeycombed, becoming active only when oppression became barefaced. These officials, that is to say, have made a point of respecting the religions of the various tribes, and have even encouraged them to continue unmolested. As a result, the governors, as a body, won the respect, and even the reverence, of a great mass of the populace, but gained comparatively little actual and personal affection. They were subjected to the jealousy of the fakirs in India, of the witch doctors in Africa, and of other dusky fanatics who had been accustomed to oppress the rank and file of the populace before the advent of the European civilization. The Dutch pursued a policy very similar to that of the English. They were essentially just in their rule and they won the wholesale respect of the subject races. Their methods of governing, however, were usually more severe than those of the British, and as a rule the discipline they enforced was considerably stronger. This has been evidenced in Africa and elsewhere. The Iberian system of colonization was in general totally different. Even the Spaniards, far less spontaneously genial than the Portuguese, encouraged an intimacy between their colonists and the subject races of a kind unknown in the Anglo-Saxon and Teutonic circles. It is true that in the first instance the Spaniards slaughtered hundreds of thousands of natives, but these wholesale killings were on account of no social convictions, they were merely the result of an overpowering greed for gold and of too harsh a method of enforcing labor. The color question, as between Spaniard and native, scarcely ruffled the social surface of the colonies. 
This was not altogether to be wondered at when the antecedents of these bold Spanish colonial pioneers are taken into consideration. A dusky tide from Africa had flooded the half of Spain, and had remained there for centuries, until the southern Spaniard, who lived in the midst of Moorish conquerors, tolerantly treated and allowed almost entire religious freedom, forgot the hostility towards his traditional enemy, and became oblivious of questions of color. So much so was this the case that the Christian services were wont, after a time, to be conducted in Arabic, a system which evoked horrified protests from bishops in other parts. Be that as it may, it is certain that the Spaniards had, with the sole exception of the Portuguese, been more concerned with the African races and dark blood than any other nation in Europe. Thus, once in South America, although the actual helplessness of the Indians was immediately remarked and taken advantage of, no question of inferiority from a mere racial point of view arose. The Indian went to the wall, not because he was an Indian, but because his powers were less than those of the European who had invaded his lands. Illustration, V-A-S-C-O-D-A-G-A-M-A, from a portrait in color in a Spanish Nislone, 197, full, 18 in the British Museum. If this was the case with the Spaniard, it was far more marked in the case of the Portuguese. In some respects, perhaps, no nation colonized with quite the same amount of enthusiasm as this. Its pioneers once definitely settled in the country, whichever it might be. There arose no question of looking upon the new conquest as a place to be resided in for a certain number of years and no more. The Portuguese went to the east and to the southwest to make themselves part and parcel of the soil of the country they had annexed. To this end they mingled from the very start with the natives, and intermarried with an entire want of restraint with the Indian women. Thus from the very inception of the Portuguese colonial era we are confronted with a race of half-castes and we see the forces brought about by a mixture of blood and climatic conditions working more powerfully in the Portuguese colonies than in any others. The result was, in one sense, the formation of a new race, and an almost complete absence of rebellion and native unrest in those parts where genuine civilization had been attempted, that the race as a whole lost its European vigor and its northern principles was inevitable. This was the price of peace. The subject is one into which climatic influence enters largely. Many of the districts of Brazil were not, and are not, in the least sweet as a permanent place of residence for the white man, were an attempt to be made to populate such places as these by Europeans. It could only be done by means of a continual change of inhabitants. That is to say, each resident, having spent a certain number of years in the spot, must be succeeded by another in order to preserve the integrity and vigor of the race. Portugal, with an extraordinary generosity flung her handful of white colonists into the vast lands she had discovered, and hoped by this means to erase the leaven of the whole. In India, as exemplified in Goa, the result has met with scant success. In Brazil, however, where the proportion of white to black was greater, a race of intellect and culture has been developed, although occasionally subject to the mental paroxysms of the dwellers in the tropics. In any case it may be said that the color question has never existed in Brazil so far. At all events, as the Indian is concerned, it was necessarily in evidence to a certain extent upon the first introduction of the Negro slave, but even here the question has become of less and less importance, until, at the present day, the Negro has in Brazil probably a more congenial resting place than anywhere else in the world. It must never be forgotten that these remarks as regards the Spanish colonies, and to almost as great an extent as regards the Portuguese applied to the general run of the population, the majority of the leaders, both social and political, 
in all the South American colonies have been in the first instance, and have continued, men of good blood, and generally of ancient lineage, who have floated along with the rest, until they met with the inevitable current which bore them to the topmost of the new social layers, and once there, having been found the most fitting, they have remained. Chapter V The Conquest of Peru The story of Pizarro and the Incas has been told many hundreds of times, yet owing to the sheer audacity of which its elements are composed it would seem to retain its interest almost unimpaired, that a mere handful of men should have banded themselves together to conquer a nation which counted its subjects by the hundred thousand, and which could claim a civilization that included great armies, remains almost beyond belief. The Incas themselves, moreover, were a conquering race and their troops had marched to the north and to the south in their thousands, conquering nations less important than their own, and thus adding to the extent of the one formidable empire of the southern continent. Yet the downfall of these armies in this victorious state was achieved by less than 200 European soldiers, led by the two fearless adventurers, Francisco Pizarro and Diego Almagro. These, accompanied by Hernando Lux, had begun to explore the neighborhood of Panama in 1524. Every member of the force, it may be taken for granted, had a keen nose for gold, and it was not long before they came across some treasure of the kind which determined the leaders to possess themselves the country where the metal was to be found. At this period the number of men commanded by Pizarro and Almagro was fewer even than the band with which they entered Peru. When it came to the knowledge of the Spaniards that the country of their desire was in reality so formidable an empire, Pizarro sailed to Spain in search of reinforcements and returned accompanied by his brothers and by a force of 180 men. It was on Pizarro's arrival in America that the first serious breach occurred between Almagro and himself. This was brought about by the arrangements which Pizarro had concluded in Spain, and in which Almagro considered, doubtless rightfully, he had not been fairly dealt with by his partner. After a while a truce was patched up between the pair, and in 1531 an expedition, carried in three small vessels, set sail for the south, the troops were landed on the Peruvian coast, and they marched inland, defeating such small forces as endeavored to oppose their progress, the valor and greed of the little army were every day becoming more deeply stirred by the trophies of gold and silver which they captured as they went, fate was fighting strongly in favor of these desperate Spaniards, no circumstances could have been better adapted to successful invasion than those which obtained when Pizarro and Almagro entered the country. Although these adventurous spirits knew nothing of this at the time, the land was divided against itself. For the first time in the comparatively short Inca history, Atahualpa and Huasca, the two sons of the recently dead Inca, Huanacapac, were engaged in a fierce struggle for the throne. This in itself was something of a shock to the devout subjects of the Inca race, looking as they did upon the imperial children of the sun as superhuman beings. It was thus a war of demigods waged by doubting and diffident mortals. The arrival of the Spaniards increased, of course, the drama of the situation, at the period of their advent Wasca was obtaining the worst of the struggle, and, seeing the possibility of salvation in the arrival of the newcomers, he sent to these beseeching their help, it can be imagined with what Avenida Pizarro seized upon this pretext to enter into the domestic affairs of the nation, but while unconsciously helped to play the fate of the unfortunate Inca race still further into the hands of the Spaniards learning of the warlike might of the white man, he also sent an embassy of friendship to Pizarro, and a little later, in 1532, he started out in order to effect his first meeting with the strangers, this took place at Caxamalca, 
in an evil moment for himself and Walpa had determined to do his utmost to impress these foreigners from overseas with the evidence of his wealth and power. His body was covered with golden plates, armor, and decorations which shone with a strange brilliance as they flashed back the rays of the sun from its worshipper. He was attended, moreover, by a chosen company of nobles, whose adornments, although by comparison less splendid, were sufficient to cause the Spaniards' eyes to start from their heads with wonder and freshly awakened lust. Had the Inca come as a humble suppliant, the fate of the nation might have been postponed, if not altogether altered. The appearance of these resplendent beings signaled its instant doom, as Edwalpa was borne on his litter of state towards where Pizarro stood expectant in front of his soldiers. A priest strode forward, and, approaching him, urged him heatedly to embrace the religion of the cross. It is certain that the Inca understood nothing whatever of what was going on. What might have been his state of mind when he was handed the breviary is unknown, in any case he flung it to the ground. This was the signal for the attack on the part of the Spaniards. Drawing their swords, they flung themselves furiously upon the altogether unprepared Indians, slaying thousands of their numbers. Pizarro himself, hacking and striking as he went, fought his way to the Inca's litter of state and it was his own hand which dragged the unfortunate ruler from his golden chair. The next moment he was guarding his captive fiercely from the chance blows which were rained upon the dusky monarch by the Spaniards who went charging by. He knew well enough the value of the Inca alive and captive in his hands. It was for this reason alone that he warded off the blows which his men would have dealt the fallen child of the sun. The main onslaught had now died away. The field of the massacre was covered with the bodies of the dead and dying Peruvians. The rest had fled. Pizarro lost no time in improving the occasion from a financial point of view. A gallant knight, Fernando de Soto, was sent to the marvelous city of Cusco authorized both by the Inca and Pizarro to despoil the temples of their treasures. Thus enormous hordes of gold and silver were obtained from the sacred buildings and from Edwalpa's loyal subjects as his ransom. Even here Pizarro showed his want of good faith, for when the treasure demanded had been given up and amassed, he still retained the person of the Inca. Matters of policy and personal dislike soon sealed the fate of this latter. In 1533 he was tried for his life. After a parodied performance of justice he was executed. Although Fernando de Soto and a number of other Spaniards protested vigorously against the act, from a purely political point of view it is likely enough that the crime was profitable, in any case it sent a shock throughout the bounds of the Inca Empire from which its dusky inhabitants never afterwards fully recovered. There was now no powerful claimant to the Inca throne. The wrongs suffered by the race at the hands of the Spaniards need not cover the fact that the Indians themselves frequently proved capable of tyrannical and sanguinary acts. Thus on the news of Edwalpa's capture his enraged adherents had slain Huasca, who by that time had become a prisoner in their hands. Pizarro now determined to take an active share in the government of the country, placing a son of Edwalpa's on the throne, and having received reinforcements of men and arms. He marched throughout the province at the head of 500 men, carrying with him the puppet king upon whom he placed great hopes. The latter disappointed these, since he died in the course of the expedition. In some respects this was doubly unfortunate for Pizarro, as there now remained one clear claimant to the throne of the children of the son Manco Capac, the brother of Huasca. Manco Capac was by no means prepared to yield tamely to the situation. For a considerable time very little was effected on either side. The Incas were slowly recovering from the shocks and tribulations which they had undergone, the Spaniards, on the other hand, 
found their attention occupied by the unexpected arrival of a Spanish expedition commanded by Pedro de Alvarado. This leader had performed his part in the conquest of Mexico, and had now hastened to the south in order to ascertain what chances of enrichment were to be met with in the land, the reputation of which was now spreading itself abroad. For a while it looked very much as if open warfare would result between the rival parties. In the end, however, Pizarro consented to buy the departure of Alvarado, and this leader retired heavy in pocket. On the whole his visit had not proved unprofitable to the astute Pizarro, since many of Alvarado's men had remained in Peru to throw in their lot with him. Pizarro and Almagro were now left in occupation of the Inca Empire. It was inevitable that jealousy should arise between the pair, and it was not long before the situation grew strained. Pizarro, true to his own interests, had insisted on returning to Spain in order to give an account of the doings in Peru. Needless to say, he employed the opportunity to obtain the royal sanction to advance still further his official position somewhat at the expense of Almagro. Of course, almost directly after his return he founded the city of Lima, intending this to supersede Cusco as the future capital of the country. All this while the breach between Pizarro and Almagro had widened. In 1535 the latter, Realizing that even the empire of the Incas was not sufficiently large to hold the pair of Spanish leaders, determined to make for the south, the expedition was a tragic one. Almagro, though his spirit was undaunted, was now aged in years, and the barren country of the Atacama Desert and the attacks of the hostile Indians rendered the enterprise a failure from a monetary point of view. Almagro had invested all his fortune in this, and his affairs now became desperate. In the meantime the crafty Pizarro had been permitted to enjoy very little peace and tranquility in Peru. Manco Capac had bided his time, and his Indian subjects, fervently loyal to the sacred dynasty, had crowded about him in their thousands. The Peruvians now assumed the aggressive. Thousands of Inca troops scoured the country, and, falling on remote and unprepared bands of Spaniards, obtained some modicum of revenge in slaughtering all they found. Encouraged by such minor successes, the Inca army advanced against the main bodies of the Spaniards. Some historians place the numbers of the native troops at no fewer than 200.000. With astonishing suddenness the situation became altered. Pizarro found himself besieged in Lima, while his brothers, shut up in Cusco, experienced an equal difficulty in beating off the attacks of the serried native ranks. Had the Spanish army in Peru been left to its own devices, there is no doubt but that their doom would have been sealed. The irony of fate, however, chose this very moment for the return of Almagro. Marching up with his grim and travel-worn band, he found himself before Cusco, surveying the beleaguered Spaniards and the investing Incas. Manco Capac had gleaned something of the disputes between the European leaders. He made advances to Almagro, and did all he could to win him to his side, but Almagro, little cause though he had to love Pizarro, proved himself staunch. He was in consequence attacked by the Inca troops, but these he repulsed with heavy losses, and then entered Cusco in triumph. Manco Capac himself escaped, and retired to the other side of the Andes. Almagro was destined to receive small thanks for his intervention. The aged conquistador laid claim to the city as part of his own dominions, and this woke into fresh activity the warfare between himself and Francisco Pizarro. Almagro, defeated, lost his head. A white and seventy-year-old head though it was, his fate by no means ended the tragedies in Peru. The current of sinister events was running here in a strangely full flood. It was only three years afterwards that Pizarro himself was murdered by his enemies, the adherents of Almagro's son, 
whom they wished to see elevated to the governorship of the country, an event which actually occurred, although it proved of very short duration. By the time this had come about, the power of the Incas had been broken for good and all, so far as practical purposes were concerned, driven from their temples and strongholds. Certain sections of the race survived, although among them were remarkably few of the noble families who had formed the salt of the land. Great numbers of the rank and file of the race met with the fate which was at that time so universal throughout the country, or rather in its metal-bearing lands, they were sent to the mines, and, worked and flogged to death, their numbers diminished with a ghastly rapidity. Some sections, more fortunate, were at a rather later age set to agriculture, and, forced to somewhat more congenial tasks than the first workers, they continued to serve the Spaniards. Chapter the I Spaniard and native the collisions with the various peoples of the continent had now afforded the conquistadors an opportunity of testing the power of each. The force of the impact had, it is true, swept into the background the first peoples with whom they had come into contact, but, as the scanty numbers of the pioneers filtered across the new territories, they found that the task of annexation was by no means so easy in every case, so far as a warlike spirit was concerned. The difference between the aboriginal tribes of the tropics and those of the southern regions was most marked. The Incas were, in many respects, a warlike race that is to say, they had possessed themselves by force of arms of the country in the neighborhood of Lake Titicaca, wresting this from whatever tribe of the Aymaras it was which, highly civilized, had held the land before them. This nucleus of empire, once obtained, they had spread to the south and to the north, and to a certain extent to the east conquering all with whom they had come into contact, with the notable exception of the Araucanians in southern Chile, the Chibchas, too, in the far north, whose civilization in some respects equaled that of the Incas, might be termed a conquery.